You're listening to Lab Notes, your weekly dose of inspiring innovation. Hello and welcome to Lab Notes. I'm your host, Dr. Leo Stevens, and today it is my absolute privilege to be able to bring you an interview with one of Australia's most prolific and inspiring young scientists, Professor Alan Duffy. First and foremost, Alan is an astrophysicist, one who has made significant contributions to our understanding of the universe, and especially dark matter, the elusive material that continues to baffle and entice some of the greatest minds in modern physics. In his hunt for dark matter, Alan has programmed supercomputers to recreate the Big Bang and plumbed the depths of gold mines to help establish some of the most sensitive detectors humanity has ever created. Now a full professor at Swinburne University in Melbourne, Alan is leading the Space Technology and Industry Institute, where he is not only continuing his outstanding fundamental science, but also bridging the gap to the commercial world. Alan himself is now the co-founder and CEO of MDetect, a spin-out company that is converting a component of the dark matter experiment into practical sensors to help monitor the safety of large-scale structures like dams and mines. But overlaid across all of this amazing research and innovation is Alan's ability to communicate the work that he does. Indeed, many in our audience might already know Alan from his regular appearances across Australian TV, radio, and print media, where he explains his complex science in a way we can all understand. Professor Alan Duffy, welcome to Lab Notes. Oh, pleasure to be joining you. So Alan, before we get on to some simple topics like dark matter physics or the origin of the universe, I wonder if we could first cover your own origin story. You were born in Northern Ireland and your formative years were at a very challenging time for that part of the world. Yet here you sit in Australia, on the other side of the planet, with an incredible career in science, in astrophysics, as an entrepreneur, and a science communicator. I just wondered if you could give us a sense of your early childhood and how that environment shaped you towards this career and this life that now seems a world away from Northern Ireland in the 1990s. Yeah, absolutely. I was growing up in Northern Ireland and faced with, as you say, the, the troubles and in particular the tit for tat period where every day there was a, a shooting on one side and then the other side would do shooting the next day and bomb scares and uh, all the disruptions that that causes. Look, a lot of people I think would have found solace or escape from, you know, enge- engaging in any in any activities. Uh, for me, it was uh, science fiction in particular. I was I was captivated by the worlds of Star Trek, somewhat utopian views, but the fact that um, rationality and and generosity of spirit can prevail. Uh, at, at home, I was incredibly loved and supported, uh, despite uh, you know parents having going through a divorce and uh, new partners entering the scene. Everyone was just incredibly positive in their impact on on myself and my, my brother at the time. It was the most remarkably mature um, breakup I've, I've ever seen. In that sense, you, you would you would hardly have known that something so drastic was happening. And you know, new uh, additions to the family uh, all went smoothly. And in fact, actually, I, I feel very blessed with the experience of growing up in Northern Ireland in a somewhat unconventional family life. It was about different experiences and being able to 
afford me insights into other worlds, both in the sense of people's experiences. James uh, introduced me to science, science fiction, and Richard later on was uh, really quite a wonderful mentor in terms of, of academic careers. But all the while, my parents were supportive of my natural curiosity. And yes, I was escaping in sci-fi uh, from, from the troubles, uh, literally capital T troubles. Um, but I was also very much captivated by the night sky, even at the early age. Uh, in fact, some of my earliest memories are, are in my dad's car driving between homes and uh, you would go into the countryside and immediately dark, I mean, incredibly dark skies in Northern Ireland and having face pressed up against the cold glass window, looking out and being captivated by the stars, yes, but also by the darkness between. I mean, was it, was it dark because there were no stars there? Was it dark because there are stars there, but somebody's blocking the light? Or is it is it dark because there's there's something there, but it's fundamentally invisible? And it, you know, it turns out it's actually all three. So at those early stages, I was deeply passionate about science. Uh, and just as a general curiosity, I you know, used to be a nerd and go on Saturdays to the Ulster Museum. And I loved the radioactive rocks display. And, you know, you could actually neat little trick they could show you the radiation glow coming off them as it as it hit as i later realized a scintillator in the class the rock itself is not glowing optically at least it's not that hot radiation but you know it wasn't clear to me that astronomy would be the path i'd take but certainly science was uh, and i think sci-fi played a big role in showing me just how exciting in fact that path could be as well as a deeply fulfilling one and this might be out of chronology a bit, Alan, but I think it speaks to your family environment as well. I've heard rumours of a family tradition called Duff Fest. Can you enlighten us on what this is? Wow, <laughs> you've done your research. Yes, yes, this is um, this is a few years later. My my dad ultimately married a wonderful lady, Cara, and uh, she had a farm in southeast England. And my entire family, uh, the Duffies, are all musicians. I'm, I'm the black sheep of the family because I, I, I'm useless at music. I, I love it, but I, I cannot play an instrument to save my life. And every year they would bring their equipment and over the long weekend they would set up in the barn and they would just jam and play for two, three days and rolling into each other's bands. And occasionally they let me get on the triangle until eventually even the triangle disappeared. You know, So so it was a, a wonderful annual tradition and it's a pretty sprawling family. So it's it's quite rare that we all get together, and I'm very excited for the first uh, Duffest post-COVID. That's that's for sure. I, I hope it happens in the next uh, year or two, and I have to wait too much longer for it. Yeah, well, thanks for that, Alan. And I did want to bring Duffest up because I don't think the art of performance is entirely lost on you as a member of the Duffy clan. Maybe you don't play an instrument, but I think the way you've combined performance with science has made you an incredibly effective science communicator, and I think that's something we'll get to later in this interview. But I also wanted to talk about your undergraduate experience, because this is when you stepped out of Northern Ireland and went to study in Manchester, in England first, and I think also in the Netherlands. How impactful was that change of environment and change of culture for you as a young scientist? I was foundational. I, in fact, it's the piece of advice I give to students. I always speak so highly about the impact that travel provides. And in particular, I certainly couldn't afford travel as a gap peer experience. Uh, when I went to Manchester, an aspect of the course that appealed was the fact that it had a fully funded third year in a country of your choice in the EU. I didn't speak any languages at that point, so that limited my, my choice to essentially Scandinavia or, or the Netherlands. 
and uh, ultimately chose the Netherlands. And then, uh, as I often do, once I make a decision, I tend to leap into it pretty completely and, and uh, even started language courses. And by the end of that year, I'd actually passed my fluency exam. So ironically, I was fluent in the only country where if you don't speak the language, you can live and work there very happily. So I, I ended up, you know, learning a fairly useless language from a practical point of view, but from a developmental point of view, it was exceptionally important that I could uh, challenge myself to live abroad and, and to know that you can not just survive, but thrive in those scenarios. You've really tested yourself. It gives you such a deep seated confidence to then leap into other opportunities. And I just cannot speak highly enough about the opportunity to travel. And, and in particular, if you can do that through any of these official schemes and ultimately effectively be paid to grow in that way, well, I mean, it's crazy not to take up that opportunity from my point of view. Yeah, absolutely, Alan. I can only echo that. So many of the guests that we speak to who are, in many cases, high performing in their fields, have done some form of travel or changed their environments quite dramatically as a really important part of their own professional development. But let's get on to your actual fields of study and science. You did your PhD at Manchester. Can you give us a sense of what you were actually studying and the types of science you were becoming involved with at that time in your career? Yeah, so, so physics at Manchester is an exceptionally prestigious course. Manchester is a historical industrial town, Victorian industrial town. There's a great focus on thermodynamics, <laughs> which, which is the study of, of heat, uh, because that's where in the north of England a lot of the advancements were coming because steam engines were being built. So you have this rich, deep legacy and history of the foundational modern era of physics, the move to the nuclear age with the Rutherford Labs, and then, of course, with, well, at the time, one of the largest telescopes ever built at Jodrell Bank, uh, the, the Lovell uh, telescopes. You've got this incredible, rich and extensive knowledge of physics. You've got Nobel Prize winners, just you bump into them. You've got Brian Cox floating around, who wasn't quite as famous as he is and I at the time. So um, used to used to occasionally catch him. And uh, it was just such a inspiring place but it wasn't really until I'd gone to the Netherlands and come back that I realized what the standard what the competition was internationally you get very comfortable in your own circle and you view yourself against your peers that you can essentially see and be near but particularly if you're interested in astronomy it's a global endeavor they're not your competition your competition is international so having that uh, international experience so early in my career really showed me just how hard I would have to work and, and what the level was to be competitive. So that was all a, a, a wonderful experience within uh, Manchester. But then uh, the PhD, uh, I was fascinated by a number of, of topics in physics. I was quite excited by superconductors, quantum mechanics, but it wasn't really until I, I did my final year cosmology course, the professor teaching it, uh, Richard Batty, Professor Richard Batty, basically explained that you could measure the mass of the smallest particle in nature by the positions of the largest structures in the universe. <laughs> just this insane idea of connection of scales and beyond the ordinary, just the opportunity to think about the very largest structures, the formation of galaxies and how these tiny little particles in the early universe would impact where they would ultimately form essentially impacting the, the gravitational seeds around which the, the galaxies themselves would eventually grow was so captivating, so extraordinarily beyond 
anything, quite frankly, I could imagine any other field offering that I, I had to take up the, the opportunity to do the PhD in, in Manchester. I still took the international travel, of course, uh, again, uh, you can see that pattern. Uh, but really, I was I was struck by the excitement of a career in in astrophysics. And it was actually in some way fulfilling something I, I discovered a few years before when I was reading Hawking's Brief History of Time, uh, must be you know, 12 or 13, very, very precociously trying to read and I did not understand as much as, as I thought I certainly did at the time, but but what I did take away from it was the idea that there was a role, a job called a cosmologist, and I just didn't know what that was. I didn't know that was a target to aim for until I read the book, and there I was doing a PhD in cosmology and trying to set myself up for a career in academic uh, world, which which really until I'd read that book about a decade before then, I, I just didn't even know that was was possible. Well, that lines up my next question very nicely, Alan. Thanks for that. I wanted to ask about mentoring. So you've mentioned the importance of Professor Batty there, but I also wanted to talk about the next part of your career when you came out to the University of Western Australia. And the institute that you joined was being established and led by Professor Peter Quinn. Can you tell us about your relationship with Peter and what that time studying at the University of Western Australia under Professor Quinn taught you about science and about leadership and about mentorship? So Peter was the director of the newly established International Centre for Radio Astronomy Research. It was a joint venture, if you will, between University of Western Australia and Curtin, the two big powerhouses in Perth. Uh, it was essentially formed because the Square Kilometre Array, the largest telescope ever conceived, much less constructed, um, was essentially nearing its final stages of planning and even the prototype was beginning to get built in the deserts of WA and they were pulling in astronomers uh, from all over the world uh, into Icarus. I was invited to travel a world away, uh, impossibly exhilarating for me as someone who does like to, to travel and immerse oneself in other cultures. And when I arrived, I got to see firsthand through Peter how important leadership is. He had this new center, uh, which would ultimately, by the way, under his leadership over the last few years, has become one of the world's great radio astronomy research institutes. It's, it's really now up there. It's probably top three in the world. And it all came from essentially, you know, started, I, was, I saw the first time we walked in the building and he's like, here's our new building. <laughs> and then he built the culture, the customs. He empowered individuals. He forged collective efforts uh, and, and team-based approaches and unified efforts across discipline areas. I mean, just masterful work over years. Uh, one thing in particular he did for me was, well, to one, afford me the time to, to meet regularly with him on a personal level. We would have lunches, we'd have catch-ups. There's also the professional you know, reporting structure, but, but there was also this quasi-mentorship role uh, which was never stated as a mentor because he just did it for everyone. He just felt it was sufficiently important. He would always make time for individuals in his team, no matter the fact that this team now was up to maybe 100 people by the, by the end of the time I was with him. And one thing that he gave to me was the uh, empowerment to communicate science. Now, it sounds perhaps a little silly, but I've come from a culture in Manchester in particular where outreach was done, it was valued, but not necessarily encouraged. So in other words, if someone was doing it, good for them, but it was never really emphasized that the individual should do that. Um, it wasn't that you were discouraged, but you certainly weren't encouraged. 
And yet in, in Perth, with Peter's leadership, he understood the importance of this new centre establishing its connection to the community, uh, to give back to the community who had funded it so deeply and, and, and with such great support over years. So we needed to tell our bosses, the taxpayers, what we were doing. And he really encouraged us all to, to get out there out of our comfort zone and to start to communicate. And it turns out I was, you know, <laughs> Looking back at my career, I started off terrible. I've gotten better. That's all I'll say. I don't, I, can, I don't know that I can claim to be any good at it, but I can certainly say I've gotten better in the years since. But even then, that first opportunity with communicating science and early engagements with media uh, was all a direct result of Peter and the emphasis that he put on it and how much he valued his team communicating science as well as doing it. Despite his modesty, it should be noted that Alan is one of Australia's premier scientist communicators, having regularly featured on ABC Radio and ABC TV, representing not only his own research, but also professional bodies that he was part of, including the Royal Institute of Australia, and more recently as a board member and executive within Questacon, perhaps Australia's premier organisation for the communication of science to children and adolescents. Suffice to say, Alan has a tremendous amount of experience and knowledge in how to communicate science to a variety of audiences. So for my next question, I asked him for his advice on how to be an effective science communicator. I think it's important to understand what you want out of that engagement. It, it's an incredibly appealing way to spend one's time giving school talks, giving media interviews, giving large public events, but it does take time. And if you want that to be your career and you want to become a professional science communicator, which I, I don't claim to be, by the way, and that's not modesty, it's, that is a professional qualification you can achieve at university and then you get paid, hopefully, appropriately for that, that specialism. Uh, I am a scientist who communicates. So first and foremost to me is that I need to be doing research and then if I get the opportunity to speak about that research to the public, then I feel like I've done all of my role. I, I see the two as, as critical. But to being an effective communicator, I would say that the key is, is to be prepared, uh, to know your audience, to tailor the message to what actually matters to them. And that's sometimes not the most important bit of the research. Uh, the bit that's going to be most relevant and most engaging might not be, on a technical sense, the bit that was the most novel or the most, you know, important scientifically from that work. So there's always a bit of a difference between what matters for the scientists to read it and reproduce those results and build upon those results and what you would actually try to convey in an immediate interview. But all of those tidbits of advice are to be taken with a grain of salt. There are many ways to get involved in science communication. And uh, certainly I would encourage if anyone has feelings or thoughts about these things to get in touch with me. I'm always very eager to hear of others' uh, opinions and experiences because I do think that there are so many different ways to be an effective communicator. And I'm, and I think, in fact, we're actually seeing a bit of a golden age of, of communication by uh, the sheer number of new voices. Uh, in particular, we have indigenous astronomy being discussed, as well as indigenous astronomers, professional astronomers who, who also are indigenous. Kristen Banks, uh, for example, Crystal Napoli, uh, Carly Noon, I mean, phenomenal scientists in their own right, but also science communicators who speak both to indigenous astronomy, but also cutting edge discoveries coming down from Hubble Space Telescope, for example. So they're all doing it different ways and doing different platforms from TikTok to Twitter to 
um, to, in my case, occasionally the TV. And I think that's a healthy sign that there are so many voices using so many means to reach the audience, which, of course, is so diverse. And you will find your audience out there. You just have to get out there and start communicating. Well, Alan, it really is great to hear that there are those Indigenous astronomers making a really important contribution to the field here in Australia. And this country does seem to hold a very special and important place on the global stage when it comes to astronomy. We recently interviewed uh, Dr. Alana Fian, who I'm sure you know, and she mentioned that Australia has these unique attributes of being in the Southern Hemisphere, facing these unique parts of the sky, and certainly being one of the you know, biggest and most empty land masses in the Southern Hemisphere. It's perhaps a little different for you as a dark matter astronomer, but could you talk a little about Australia's place in the international astronomy scene and what has allowed us to take such a dominant place on the global stage? It, it's certainly one of the powerhouses of the world in, in astronomy. There's the advantage that the Southern skies present, uh, the fact that you also get to see the Milky Way uh, stretch perfectly directly overhead. That means you're seeing through less air, you get a better picture, as well as, as other advantages to being in a low light polluted country. Uh, you can get away from city lights. You can also get away from people's mobile phones. And that's actually the key for the radio astronomy, the square kilometer array in particular. So those are the natural advantages, but, but we also have decades of support by state and federal government. The CSIRO uh, has invested over decades to build up just truly exceptional world-class expertise. And I think that the, the combination of your comparative advantage, what is your position, what we have, plus the expertise and the relative to our population size, certainly very large astronomy community, I think all of those mean that Australia really is one of the, the giants of the astrophysical world. Um, I'm trying to not say we punch above our weight because I absolutely detest that phrase. But anyways, we, we certainly, uh, I think, outperform uh, what you might expect. Now, you know, that that may come at a cost because an opportunity cost because we're focusing on astronomy and perhaps not something else. But I rather think what we have seen instead is a is a benefit to all of science by both the greater awareness of science within Australia because of astronomy uh, and the success of astronomy. It, it is a tide that, that lifts all boats, but also in the translation and commercial outcomes. And I'm sure Alana had spoken about, and I hope she mentioned her efforts with, with Quasar as one, one example of a spin-out company. But there are many other instances, including Wi-Fi, that have come from our efforts in astronomy. And that is, uh, of course, to the benefit of all. But in particular, in Australia, it allows for an easier argument, it's not a given, but an easier time of advocacy for so-called blue sky research that doesn't have an immediate translatable uh, outcome uh, because it's the pipeline to future ideas, products, services in the market that can be developed, can be translated. You've got to get the early ideas and the wonderful advancements in technology and techniques. And that is one thing that astronomy does very well. And I think it also inspires people to science and STEM in general. And I think for students to study engineering or maths or, or any of the other sciences is a benefit to the country. Even if they never end up in astronomy, we're clearly better off for having a better educated, better informed, technically capable, savvy electorate when it comes time to, to voting or to deciding on large programs of work that we as a nation need to to address for example climate change but also to just have a better educated workforce that develops an advanced 
economy that we can all reap the rewards of. So in all of these myriad ways, I think astronomy plays you know, a small but important role domestically and internationally. It's I, I knew of Australia from the astronomy perspective. Uh, I, I, you know, I knew of all of these locations and the wonderful telescopes and facilities, the parks, the dish. I mean, the dish is famous <laughs> internationally. Um, and I think there's very few places on earth that you could say could say the same. And Australia is very much in one of those, you know, top three, top four places in the world for astronomy. It's taken us a long time of committed effort to be in that, that position. And I think we should be proud of that. Absolutely, Alan. And there's a lot to unpack in that answer. But let me pick out one thing you said in particular which was the importance of funding this early stage blue sky research, even when it's not clear where it's going to lead. Because quite often some of the really interesting inventions come out of research that was not at all related to trying to seek out that particular advancement for humanity. And I know you're currently on a journey just like that with MDetect. But before we start talking about that company, can we first start talking about the blue sky research that led up to it? You are, first and foremost, a dark matter physicist. Can you explain what that means and particularly what you've been doing with the SABRE experiment? Yeah, absolutely. So, so dark matter is a mysterious, uh, currently unknown, new kind of mass, the gravity of which holds the galaxies together. In fact, it reveals itself by the motion of what we can see, the stars being pulled around by the gravity of an unseen companion. So we know where it is through these techniques. We know how much there is, but we actually still don't know what it is. So one concept, one leading idea is that it is a new kind of a particle known as a WIMP, a weakly interacting massive particle. And that's weakly interacting in the sense of, you know, it doesn't interact with normal material. It flies through us, solid walls, the, the Earth itself without collision, because it's actually nuclear force weakly interacting. So, you know, in any case, still very much weakly interacting. Uh, invisible doesn't shine or absorb light. So essentially it's a ghost, it's invisible, flies through walls. We do think very occasionally it will collide with the atom of your body and cause that atom to fly out. And, you know, you're talking a few billion particles passing through you each and every second. Maybe one a day might cause an atom to recoil out of your body or some some low number. And you'll never have noticed that, experienced that. But, you know, we make for very bad dark matter detectors. But fortunately, we're building this better one, Sabre. And Sabre is an international collaboration. It's uh, led by Professor Elisabetta Barberio of University of Melbourne, but involves, you know, a rich team of researchers from... Princeton to the INFN of Italy to to ANU, um, Swinburne, Unimel, Ansto and others. And the idea of Sabre is to build very sensitive crystals that will glow when struck by dark matter. Uh, and essentially with very sensitive cameras, look for that glow. And then you can reveal the fact that you got hit by this ghost-like particle by the crystals glowing. Now, unfortunately, they're glowing, getting hit by other things, particular radiation from the sun or, or cosmic rays. So you take them deep underground use the natural shielding that a, a kilometer of rock uh, provides in an active gold mine. So deep underground, this active gold mine, we now have the Stoll Underground Physics Laboratory carved out into this uh, this active mine. And that kilometer's worth of rock blocks the radiation from the sun and the cosmic rays, but allows the dark matter, this ghost, to just travel through essentially unimpeded. And then uh, very occasionally deep underground in the dark, we will hope see the glow of the crystals when struck by this dark matter. So 
that's the Sabre experiment in a nutshell. But the opportunity that Australia affords us truly uniquely is the fact that uh, there is a reported signal from the northern hemisphere and it and it's seen to vary over the course of the year as the Earth's orbit goes around the sun. And uh, very, very quickly, I'll just explain a headwind. We have this idea that the dark matter is all around us. Uh, the sun travels around the galaxy and hence through this cloud of dark matter that's holding it together. And much as if you're driving in a car, say the air is doing its thing, maybe it's you know it's a still day, there's no wind, but if you drive through it and you open the car window, you can certainly feel the wind, right? And that's that's your motion through it, not as a wind blowing in you. So we call that a headwind effect. And in the same way the sun is going around the galaxy, we're traveling into this dark matter cloud we would experience this rush of dark matter towards us just like uh, the headwind experience of your hand out of the car window and, and driving through it. So we know from where this dark matter wind should blow and for half the year the earth's motion is towards that direction the sun's travel so the wind blows harder for half a year and then blows less as we travel in the opposite direction. That all is a long way of saying that in, in June you see more events, or we would expect more events as the wind blows harder, and then around December you're at a minimum, you're seeing fewer because the Earth's motion has now gone in the opposite direction to the sun's through the galaxy. This signal was seen exactly by a northern hemisphere group. It has not been shown by any other detector. However, one way to rule out the fact that this is, is dark matter and instead something else that varies through the year, like say the seasons. So we're seeing some complex weird effect by the seasons on the detector and many different groups have tried to figure out what that might be. But the simplest thing is just to go somewhere where the seasons are exactly six months offset from what the North is experiencing. So in other words, in Australia, we would see the dark matter wind blow at the same uh, same strength at the same time as the Northern hemisphere. It just It goes right through the earth, it, w it doesn't care. So we should both see an increase in June and a decrease in December. Or if it's something instead to do with the seasons, we'll see an opposite signal. So they'll get their increase in June, which is their summer, which of course is our winter. So we'll see a negative and, and vice versa when it's the Christmas period. So the opportunity one we saw in Australia's advantage for astronomy was the southern sky. We see that same advantage for slightly different reasons now in this global hunt for dark matter. And when you see the size of the effort globally and the fact that we are the only detector in the Southern Hemisphere, it's just a unique opportunity and really exciting time. Uh, the fact that this thing is rolling out uh, soon is yeah, a bit of a dream come true. It's been a number of years of hard work by all the team. I can't claim any work at all by myself, but it was very much uh, a wonderful um, journey. And now we're getting close to finally turning it on and hunting for ghosts. That hunting for ghosts idea is absolutely fascinating, Alan, and I would really encourage our audience to look a bit deeper into the dark matter physics story to get a better sense of your work. But equally fascinating to me is the commercial journey you've started on as a result of this Sabre experiment, because it really exemplifies that concept we were talking about earlier of fundamental science yielding new opportunities that really weren't the core purpose of the science itself. Now, at the center of your Sabre experiment is a sodium iodide detector, and your team's expertise in designing and optimizing that sensor really was the genesis for this new commercial idea that became M-Detect. Can you explain what the M-Detect technology is and how it emerged from this very fundamental research you were doing with the Sabre experiment? Yeah, absolutely. Look, it came out of our work, in particular Shanti Krishnan, uh, her PhD work, 
uh, with a realization that we would still get some of these these muons traveling from space. They're incredibly penetrating. They're able to still reach even a kilometer underground and would otherwise blind the detector, hitting the crystals of the sodium iodide, as you, as you rightly said. So one way to get around that is to essentially build these little, much cheaper detectors that are sensitive to muons, place them around the dark matter detector and veto, trigger essentially when, when a muon strike comes through and in that way allow you to differentiate between what was a muon and maybe what was a dark matter particle. So in other words, we built a new kind of detector that was sensitive to these cosmic rays, that was cheap uh, because we have no money, we're scientists, right? So you're always innovating. So cheap, commodity-based, and very robust because it has to operate in a mine, entirely for the purpose of removing this background unwanted signal of these cosmic rays. But one man's trash is another man's treasure because cosmic rays, the muons, while they can penetrate through hundreds of meters of rock, they are preferentially stopped by denser structures. Uh, essentially, there's a shadow or equivalently a hotspot by under-dense structures. So if you have a, an air gap opening up underground, a, a you know, precursor to a subsidence event, a detector deep underground looking up would see a hotspot glowing ever brighter as more muons arrive than you had anticipated, your models had suggested. Or there was a shadow being cast by a denser uh, structure through you know either water table changes, water leaks, or you know ore bearing bodies. The idea was then encapsulated through the Swinburne accelerator program into now what is called MDetect, where we use those cheap, small, robust detectors in a very modern approach to sensor detection. In other words, throw down lots of cheap detectors, and then in software, and in particular through AI recover a better image from all of those scattered different points of view. And in that sense, you turn an X-ray into a CAT scan and you get a nice 3D picture of an underground region. And we're very successful in government funded industry grants administered through the Advanced Manufacturing Growth Center. And that with our partners, Oz Minerals, has allowed us to essentially develop up the technology to uh, this commercial ready stage with a deployment in fact, perhaps even by the time people have heard this, we will actually be on site and we'll be imaging a tailing storage facility, a large earth structures that hold back, you know, potentially kilometers uh, in size of tailings waste, so waste from the mining processes. Huge structures, very challenging to image in any other way. Um, and we will be demonstrating our technology alongside all of the other wonderful techniques one can use, seismic and, and SAR and everything else. But uh, the, the muons really do allow us to get the density of these mega structures, hundreds of meters of rock in, in a way that you just simply can't do with, with any other technique. But to have it all come from the most esoteric and the most blue sky research imaginable, the search for dark matter, uh, I think just is a lovely exemplar of the importance of funding blue sky research, developing our ideas, advancing techniques and technologies, and then you get innovation and ultimately commercialization in surprising ways. Yeah, absolutely, Alan. Look, it's a really inspiring journey you've been on and it's unusual not only because it came from such a fundamental blue sky piece of research, but it's also unusual because of your involvement in the company. And what I mean by that is you were already a fairly secure, tenured academic, a, a full professor before this company was founded. And for context for our audience, it's much more common in Australia for the entrepreneurial scientists to be early career researchers or PhD students 
who perhaps have less to risk by moving across into the commercial world. There's relatively few examples of senior fellows and of professors becoming company founders. Perhaps they'll be advisors or directors, but not involved in the company day to day. How have you managed both the time demands and also the potential conflicts of interest that occur when you're moving back and forth between the academic world and the commercial one? Yeah, that's a great question. So I, uh, I'm, I'm incredibly fortunate to be at Swinburne uh, and have such a supportive institution and an industry-focused institution at that, that, which really gets the commercial landscape. But it is, it is a demanding uh, role. It is a time-intensive experience. And it's just a lot of, uh, there's no way around it. It's just a lot of evenings, a lot of weekends spent on that. I'm also very fortunate with my co-founding team who are all as dedicated as I. So it's all certainly manageable in that sense in terms of the workloads and still delivering on, on your work in the university. But I'm fascinated by other locations that seem to have gone even further than Australia in terms of the industry academic ecosystem. I, I look to the likes of Stanford or, you know, the ecosystems of, of Silicon Valley or Israel, where you see this blurring between the university and the industry. And in fact, there's, you know, they're co-located. It's very hard sometimes to see. You've wandered in, down a corridor and you've, you've ended up on the industry side from, from the academic. So it's as close as that. Um, we're not there in Australia. We don't have that closeness on, on scale. Um, we have instances of co-located industries uh, on, on university campuses. But integral to that is the fact that you will have academics with a foot in both worlds. In fact, you want that. You want your researchers to be going into industry and back. And ideally, that be such a, a low friction, low barrier that it's, it's a constant, constant effort because you take techniques, technologies from the university into industry and the best practices from industry back and also the needs of industry back to the university to inform both research but also education. So how to manage that, quite frankly, is to be transparent. There's no secret to it other than to be uh, transparent with your line managers, your teams, to be incredibly clear to others and yourself, which hat are you wearing at what time? Uh, but it is a balancing act. And I think it's one that needs constant evaluation and constant uh, support to get right. I think we see that with any joint appointments as well with you know between a university and say the CSIRO or industry appointed chairs. I mean there's instances where people have to wear different hats at different times and the only way to manage that is transparency and uh, constant feedback from others. You know critically as the person in the role aren't also always making the call about what's appropriate. You, you really do have to outsource that to your boss ultimately to make those those decisions, even if it's the one you would have made, it's still appropriate. It's an independent figure that makes it. So I, th I think that's another reason that I'm very fortunate where I'm at, where I have that kind of support from senior leadership um, to undertake these efforts and to ensure that I do right by my investors for the uh, company, for Endotech. Uh, but of course, also my stakeholders, students and university in general uh, in my Santa Rolla Swinburne. That's fantastic, Alan. I'm so glad this journey is working for you. And I too hope it becomes more common across Australian academia. I did want to ask, to what extent do you think your science communication, your profile, and I guess the trust you had been building within your institution allowed Swinburne to have the confidence in you as an individual and as a leader to get this done. Do you think your profile was a factor in allowing MDetect to be built the way that it has? 
I think the science communication and the profile I've received has helped me more on the company side, if I'm honest, with people knowing who I am. I mean, I know without being a big head here, I mean, you know, it's it's really helpful to go into a VC funding round where they're like, oh, I know you from TV. <laughs> You're, you know, you sounded really smart about this. I mean, that that's a great way to start things. Uh, it doesn't happen every time, by the way, I, I really want to emphasize. Uh, but in terms of the trust and certainly the trust within the university structure is, is critical. It's not unique to me by any means. Um, we have a number of staff who've, who've led startups and spin outs. But if I could say there was any similarity between us all, it was partly the, the university and its size, the fact that it's sufficiently large to have these scale of investments possible and, and large you know, pieces of equipment and innovative pieces of research uh, that can go into spin outs, but also small enough that everyone actually knows those staff members and knows them personally. The commercialization team, the leadership, senior leadership team, all know these individual researchers. So there's an understanding and, and trust built through that, but certainly it's not uh, it's not something I would take for granted. I think that, and, and indeed all of, all of us who've been part of these startup journeys are incredibly fortunate to have that trust because a lot of the commercialization process uh, can move very quickly uh, it can move dynamically. Uh, it's, it's sometimes hard to foresee what the business opportunity is, and and you need the institution to be responsive to that. And perhaps you know if it's a licensing agreement or if it's a an opportunity to be more flexible with with work hours. You know w- whatever the scenario, you need a responsive, trusting organization to allow that to happen. Especially in those early days where so many of these spinouts can fail. I, th- I think it's absolutely foundational to have the support of the, the larger university organization. And we know with the low rates of translation success, however, that this is not a widespread success story. And, uh, you know, I, I would hazard a guess that perhaps trust is is one issue that has caused these kinds of failures in, in other instances, other universities, perhaps. But it, it certainly won't be the only one. There are many challenges to commercialization. And I can certainly imagine just as with communication, there's no one best way to do it. Well, Alan, unfortunately, we're running out of time before I'm running out of questions, but I'll pick one to finish on. You've recently taken up a role with Questacon, which is one of Australia's premier organisations providing science education to children and adolescents, and that included myself some 20 years ago. How do you think your work and your experience can contribute to that organization and and help shape the next generation of scientists, of engineers, and indeed of young astrophysicists? No, QuestCon is an absolute national treasure. It's the the nation's science and technology center. It uh, has a mandate to raise awareness, inspire, but also educate uh, the nation and beyond about science and technology. uh, my role there is formerly within the advisory council, sitting in that organization, this ministerial appointment, which I was incredibly privileged and, and grateful to receive. And you just get to oversee the entire activity of this organization. There's some 200 possibly dedicated, wonderful and talented professionals, and they are working on incredibly exciting, innovative education products rolling out across the country in this Questacon Science Circus into to the regions with these products, but also working on, you know, Cyber Ready and other programs about the very latest in cybersecurity issues. So, you know, incredible diversity. And in the council, you get to see across all of that. You get to give your input. 
and you can be actively involved if you so choose. There's always that option. The door is always open to get on the bus around the science circus, which um, I've just had a, a couple of kids recently, so I'm, I'm not yet able to commit my time to that. But maybe if they can join me sometime soon in the years ahead, I, I certainly will. But the idea is to take what I have learned in communication and what drives me and now have that slightly higher helicopter view. And, and in fact, to better support my own contributions to, to Quest Economy and value that I could bring to them, uh, I undertook the Australian Institute of Company Directors course. Phenomenal experience of about a, a week or two of, of training, which was one of the most impactful learnings I've probably ever received. So I could highly recommend it to everyone. Um, but really from that director's lens, understanding better your role, fiduciary responsibilities, obligations that come with, with such a unique entity, both structurally within government, but also just as a, as a place in all of our hearts. So I take very seriously my role uh, at Questacon, and I would try in everything from fundraising to education delivery to just oversight within the council, try my best to add whatever insights I can, whatever help I can to to support all of these wonderful people that just do the most outstanding job. And as you say, it is an entity that is beloved. And I used to think astronomy was popular. <laughs> so I told people I was, I was even distantly involved with Questacon and my goodness, then the love really shows people are rightly proud and thankful that Questacon has been a part of their lives and look forward to taking their kids to it. And long may that continue. Well, Alan, I'm very sorry to say we are out of time, but it's been an absolute pleasure speaking to you. Thank you so much for giving us your time and your insights here on the Lab Notes podcast. Oh, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Well, that's all from Lab Notes today. Thanks for listening. Don't forget you can always check out the episode description for our guest biography and links to all of the organizations mentioned in today's episode. Lab Notes is a production of Eon Labs with music sourced from Purple Planet Music and mixed by Dr. Nat Harris. If you've liked today's episode, don't forget you can subscribe to get new episodes in your feed and check out our back catalog for any interviews you might have missed. But that's all for now, so until next time, keep inventing.